0: That is Brynn and I's story, my wife and I, and today I want to talk about a question that almost everybody has, and I'm not going to talk about it in the way that you might want me to, or the way that uh, is, it's most often phrased, but in the way that I I needed to uh, deal with it, I guess, in my own life, and the question is, why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, why does a loving God allow for bad stuff to happen to people that are good and then sometimes on the opposite side of that you know bad people and and good things seem to always happen to them and the answer to that question uh, can be as complex or as simple as you want to make it and uh, the simple answer is that sin entered the world people chose to rebel against God and through that bad stuff started happening and uh, you can look at most of the things that are difficult in your life and uh, and they come from just one of two things, and uh, they might come because other people are hurting you, uh, and you look around at kind of the tragedies in the world and the difficult things that exist, and uh, almost half of them exist because people choose to not do what God has called them to do. And then the other, the other reason that, that bad things happen to good people is because bad the consequence of those 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 sins, those disobediences, is that death entered into the world. And so, when you think about things like disease and miscarriage and uh, and people dying of of all sorts of things, it, it's uh, it's because sin is into the world, and with it, death came into the world. and And there's a great video on our website actually, if you go to www.creeksidebiblechurch.org backslash Jesus, you can actually look at a video, and the video explains why we think, why smart people think that, that bad things happen to good people when there is an all-loving God, but, but for me, we lost our two babies in the last year. Uh, the question was not why do bad things happen to good people. I, I guess that uh, for me, I've, I've known God long enough and I trust him enough to know that he is still good and he is still loving, even when bad things take place in my life. The, the question for me is why do bad things happen to sinners? And the question really uh, took this form, uh, were the miscarriages my fault? Were they punishment from God, I wondered if it was because I had lusted. I wondered if it was because I had not prayed enough. I wondered if it was because Bryn and I had had a fight, and I could actually point to specific sins in my life. Uh, one of me and Bryn's biggest arguments happened about the day that our baby's heartbeat stopped. And you, you think about that, and you look back, and you go, "Wow, was it? Was it because of that? Was it God's punishment for me?" Now we all know there's consequences for our actions, and uh, and that's not what I'm talking about. I mean. If you murder somebody, you'll go to prison. If you, if you do something stupid, you'll probably get hurt in some way over the long period. I'm not talking about that because I understand that that's, that's true and there's consequences and things like that. I'm talking like, I, did God do this? I mean, was this my fault? Is God saying, hey, you messed up? And so here's what I'm going to do in order to set you right, in order to fix your thinking, in order to fix you and, and the things that you do wrong. And, and I know that there is really an easy answer to this question. I mean, we all have it, right? I mean, even if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, you've just kind of experienced something and you've kind of looked up and said, God, did you do this to me? Is it because of something I did? Is this my fault? And, and we all kind of, if you've been around church, we know the cliche answer. I mean, the cliche answer is, no. It's not something God did you. It's not punishment. It's not your fault. Uh, Just, you know, move on and you're okay. God is all loving and it's not your fault. It's not punishment. That's the cliche answer. And it's usually followed, as, as I studied for this sermon and tried to come up with an answer, it's usually followed by this. Jesus died for the sins of the world and so the punishment for all sins was placed upon him and therefore, it could not be God punishing you, chastising you for this thing that you've done. Because Jesus already paid for it. And, and here's just a couple of things. First of all, I believe that Jesus paid for all of our sins. But I think the cliche answer ignores like 90% of the Bible. It's, it's like, hey, let's look at one verse and let's make everybody feel good and say, well, this couldn't possibly be your fault. But I, I had a problem as I went through the miscarriages and that's that I know the Bible better than a lot of people. So cliche answers don't work for me because you can say, well, there's this one verse and I can say, yeah, but here's three more, you know, and and, and I don't think that you're stupid people. And I don't. Uh, And here's the other thing that that I think you've come to expect from me, and that is that I don't just get up here and say what everybody else says, uh, just the nice thing, the easy thing, the thing that's going to make our church grow as we move forward. I'm going to try always to tell you the truth as I see it in the Bible. And so the cliche answer, it would be nice, I can make it really the easy sermon today, would be like, look, I wrestled with whether I was being punished, and that's why the miscarriages came. You wrestle with whether things are your fault as you look back on your life. No, we all cry, we all feel good, we all go home happy, right? But the Bible doesn't make it that easy. I mean, and I think we know it's not that easy, just somewhere inside of us, it's not like, yeah, even if you're a Christian, you've been around forever. Yeah, Jesus died for me, so nothing is my fault and God never punished me. It's just not that easy on our insides. And it's really not that easy when we read the scripture. And so today, I, this, is, this is more than any sermon I've maybe ever done, exploratory in nature. I'm going to hop around in the Bible and I, I try not to do that too much. And I'm just going to uh, maybe in, just for us, just kind of say, look, It's not that easy, and then maybe give you just uh, my best guess because I don't, I don't, I wish I don't have like the the answer to like the thing you're thinking about. Was this God's punishment in my life? I don't, I don't know the answer. I'll just tell you that ahead of time, Uh, but I'll give you my best guess at the end, and 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 I will tell you what you can kind of do with that and and how maybe those thoughts uh, can be beneficial to you. But I'm gonna read some bigger sections of scripture, and 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 I'm doing this uh, because I think you're smart. I think that you are people who think in our in our congregation. I think you're people who don't just want the simple, fluffy answer that that you could find just by turning on your TV to channel 24 in the Wilsonville area and they could tell you just feel good about yourself, but I don't think that's what you want. I think that's one of the reasons you're at this church. And so I just I just want to explore this with you this morning. And so it starts uh, in 2nd Samuel 12:13 through 23. And this is one of the hardest passages of scripture for me after our babies died, and you'll understand in a second. So let me, let me read this to you. Then David said to Nathan... I have sinned against the Lord. Let me give you a little background information. David, a king of Israel, the mightiest king in Israel's history, was sitting at home when he should have been off at war. He looked down. He saw a naked woman on top of a building. He said, wow, I want to sleep with her. Somebody go get her. She was brought in. She was already married. And so long story short, David had her husband killed in order to cover up her pregnancy that he caused, okay? And so he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. That's good news. That's really the good news of the Bible. Forgiven, right? You are not going to die. But even though your sins are forgiven, because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth and on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child had died, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. There's a few things that are really important. First of all, this is the passage that, that causes us, me, I should say, to believe that when babies die, they go to heaven. David, I'm assuming, based on the fact that God calls him a man after his own heart, and he he's, lives just an incredibly righteous life, and he loves God as much as anybody the world has ever known, is in heaven. And, and David doesn't say, like, I hope I get to see my child again someday. He says, someday I will go to him, But here's the other thing. In this passage, it says that David is forgiven of his sin. But yet, but yet, God causes his baby to die as punishment for the thing that he did wrong. I mean, that's not simple, right? That's not something we can just ignore when we're talking about miscarriage or anything else bad that happens in our life. That's not something we can gloss over, say, hey, yeah, just feel good about yourself. That's difficult. But then we flip over to a book called Job. It's later in the Bible. and Job 1, 13 through 20, says this. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting drinking, and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. Now we know, if you've ever read the book of Job, uh, then you know this. If you haven't, then let me just tell you. At the end of the book of Job, we find that Job had not done anything wrong to deserve all of that. I mean, his whole life collapses from underneath him. And he gets sick. It doesn't say that in in that section I just read you. But his whole life falls apart. And at the end of the book, we find out that Job had done nothing to deserve it. It was the hand of Satan, not the hand of God. And God calls Job righteous. He declares it. He says, look, he's right. Job is right. He hasn't done anything to deserve this. And so on one side, we have David, whose baby is killed because of sin. On the other side, we have Job, whose babies, his children, die because of nothing he has done. Simply because Satan attacks them. Now, when we flip to the New Testament, because the response is like, well, that's the Old Testament, and God was different in the Old Testament. That's not true, but that's how people kind of think about God. Like, before Jesus came, God was different, and, and so after Jesus came, maybe, maybe it just got more clear, and we could just see, like, you know, God never would punish anybody in that way. Listen to what Jesus says in 9, 1 through 3. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, the man or his parents, that he was born blind? And here's what Jesus says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. The guy didn't do anything. He didn't deserve to be blind. Nothing, nothing took place in his life that God is punishing him for. So there it is. I mean... God doesn't punish us now that Jesus lives. Oh, wait, but John 5, 1 through 9, listen to this. Sometime later, Jesus went up from Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there was, in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was... There had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then... Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Now, just a little bit later, Jesus talking to the same man, and here's what he says. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see you are well again. stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Seems to be a result of his sin that he had been paralyzed for all those years. And if not, Jesus makes a very clear recommendation, if you don't stop sinning, then something worse is going to happen to you, Jesus isn't like, let me, hey, I'm going to die on a cross, and nothing bad will ever happen again, and you know, God would never, it doesn't say any of that, it's like, look, if you keep sinning, something bad might happen to you, and you think, okay, and then the other, the other real kind of excuse would be like, or reasoning, or logic would be, okay, but once Jesus died, you know, once Jesus died on a cross, you've been around Christian circles, then, then the punishment for the things that we have done wrong, then we, couldn't be paid, we, couldn't, we didn't have to pay for anything after he died. But listen to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven through 30. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's talking about communion and it's talking about not doing it in a unified way with the rest of the people in your church. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink it without discerning the body of Christ, the church, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Listen to this. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, have died. saying, you want to know why lots of people are getting sick and dying in your church? It's because you guys aren't discerning the body, the church. You're not thinking about one another when you take communion. If you read the rest of the chapter, you'd find what they were doing is like, they're getting drunk before they're coming to communion. And they're eating full meals at communion while watching other people in the same church just starve and not have anything to eat. And Paul is saying, this is why some of you are dying. And then you flip over to Hebrews 12, 4 through 11 and you read this. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father if they are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not illegitimate children, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live They disciplined us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, this is pretty straightforward. I mean, this is is just as clear and as obvious as the Bible can possibly make it. God disciplines those he loves. But there's a couple of things. There's some really important things about this passage that, that if you've ever looked at it before, if you've ever read it, if you've ever heard it quoted, that then maybe... Maybe you've overlooked them, and uh, the first is, is this, and that is that the word here is discipline and not punishment, and uh, it's a little bit hard to find the idea of punishment in the New Testament, and, and so anything that God does in your life, if he is causing bad things to happen, you call them bad, he would probably say they're good for you, but if you have bad things and God is doing them to you, he's not doing it because he's angry with you or because he wants to, to make you pay. He's doing it because he wants to fix something in your life. Discipline is very different than punishment, right? Discipline fixes behaviors. Punishment just responds to a bad behavior. It just makes somebody pay for a bad behavior. Now, here's the other thing. It doesn't say how God disciplines us. The word for discipline refers to training somebody up towards maturity. And so if you were to to place it in context of a parent, it actually refers to everything a parent does to help move their child towards maturity. That can include spanking, right? That can include discipline as we think of it in our our modern day sense. But it's not just that. It's talking about everything that a parent does in order to help their child become all that God wants them to be. Like setting a good example, talking to their children, offering their children encouragement when they need encouragement, being a shoulder to cry on when a child needs a shoulder to cry on. So this isn't just like, hey, God God spanks you every time you do something wrong. This is like God is doing his best to turn you into a mature, full creature that lives the way that he knows is absolutely best for you. In verse five, it says rebukes, and it means to put to shame uh, by proving that somebody is wrong. That is really, really important. Notice again, let me just give you that definition of that Greek word, to put to shame, to do so by proving one in the wrong. And so it seems to be saying that God disciplines when he needs to prove to you that you have done something wrong, not just to make you pay for it, not just to fix you, but to to show you that the thing that is happening in your life is not the way it ought to be. The discipline of the Lord is, is, is really about revealing to his children, those who are Christians, that something isn't the way it ought to be. In verse six, it says chastens, and it means to scourge or to flog. And that really doesn't have, I don't mean to say this with the Bible, but it has no meaning for our lives today because I've never been spanked by God. I've never been scourged by God. I've never been flogged by God. And so it's obviously metaphorical for the fact that God will bring things into our life, what things we do not know, in order to help us understand that we are doing something wrong. Now here's the other really key part about these verses. These verses come at the tail end of a whole section on how these people are suffering, and it's not their fault. This section, or this, these verses come after chapters seven through 10, which talk about how these people are being persecuted for their faith, and they haven't done anything to deserve the things that they are struggling with. And so the point, it seems, as we come to chapter 12, is not to say, look, God's gonna get really mad at you sometimes and fix you. It's to say, hey, you're dealing with bad things and know this, that if God is allowing these things to come into your life, even if he is causing them, it is for your good. So he's trying to convince these people, these Jewish people, that they ought to continue to serve and follow Jesus, even though that it's, very, it's very, very difficult, because they are facing persecution even persecution at the hands of their own nation, the people that, that are there, their same nationality. And so these verses, if you just take them and you rip them out of context, like, well, he's just simply talking about God punishing us when we do things wrong. But if you take it in the context, he's saying, Look, I know bad things have come. Some of those could be caused by God, but the reason that he would cause them is not just so that you suffer, not just so you go through bad stuff, but in order to help you understand that there are some wrong things in your life that you ought to fix, that you ought to change, in order that you can be the person that you want to be and that God wants you to be. Notice just right at the beginning, I'll read it again, I want to, and you have completely forgotten, this is how he describes what he's about to say, and you have completely forgotten the word of encouragement It addresses you as a father addresses his son. The whole section is meant to be encouraging to us. If we are going through something, even if God has brought it, it is because he cares about us and he loves us like a father loves his son. So here's two questions I I think that, that... if, you're gonna, if we're gonna put some questions out there and you wanna know, like, is God punishing me? Is this, so, because, is he disciplining me? Is he trying to fix something in my life? There's a couple of questions that should really be asked. The first one is this. Uh, Do you need discipline in your life in order to help you live life to the fullest or to help you return to focusing on Jesus? The question is, was it needed for you to change the behavior in your life? Have you come to a place Where you were just so okay with not living for God, that God had to do something in order to wake you up, in order to point out your sin, in order to help you realize that if you keep going in the direction you're going, then you're eventually not going to be living for him at all. You see, if you want to know whether something is discipline of God, you look at the tragedy that you're thinking about, you go, wow, I can't believe this happened. Did God do this to me? Is this because of something in my life? Then the first question that I think, according to that Hebrews passage, that needs to be asked is, was it needed to wake you up to the sin and the wrongdoing, the disobedience in your life? Were you moving away from God? And, and, and did he need to draw you back through the difficult thing that, that happened in your life. That's the first question. Here's the other question. This, you know, you may not even even think about this, but but it's important that you do because you're a part of this church and we want this church to be all that God wants it to be and we're trying to build this church and, and here's the question. Was your behavior affecting the Christian community by causing it to suffer? You see, as you kind of look at those passages that I've read, they have one thing in common. That that when God disciplines, most often it is because you are doing something that is not allowing the Christian community that you are part of to be all that God wants it to be. So you have to ask yourself, are there things in your life right now, the way you interact with each other The things that you are committing as sins that are really not allowing this church to move forward as a church. Because if so, then yes, the things that happen in your life very well might be from God. I want to finish by just reading some sections from Romans 8. And I think Romans 8 gives us a wonderful picture of how we ought to view the suffering in our lives. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a big deal. I mean, you are not condemned. God is not going to punish you for eternity if you have given yourself to Jesus. If you have become a Christian, then you need not worry about being punished forever. Anything that comes upon your life is not simply to punish you, it's to help you move forward. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering and so we condemn sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. That is to say, you are forgiven for all your sins. You, if you have given yourself to Jesus, if you have said, look, I believe you died on a cross and that you rose again and so here I am offering my whole self to you because I believe in that, then you need not worry about being forgiven for anything that you've done. If you're thinking like, well, if God disciplines me, maybe it means that I won't get into heaven. Maybe it means he doesn't like me. Maybe it means he, I don't love, he doesn't love me. Maybe it means that, that I won't have forgiveness ultimately. The answer is absolutely no. In Romans eight fifteen, it goes on. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. God doesn't want you to be like, oh, man, if I mess up, I'm going I'm to get in trouble and something bad is going to happen in my life. That's not what he wants. That's not who he is. That's not how he interacts with you. He's not up there going, oh, mistake, oh, mistake, oh, they messed up, boom, boom, boom. Oh, now you have cancer, now your friend died. Now, no, that's not, God doesn't want you to think like that or... or feel like that he wants you to look at him as a loving father that you can cry out to abba father which loosely translates to daddy a loving god who treats you as a good dad treats his children that's how he wants to be seen by you, Romans eight, eighteen, and 19. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. He's saying, look, even if you're suffering now, you don't need to be in fear. Because ultimately, these sufferings are just small potatoes compared to the glory that as Christians you will have someday. The things that you're facing, even though they seem horrible and they're tragedies, they are not worth comparing to the weight of glory that you will one day receive if you have given your life to Jesus. And then Romans eight twenty eight. this is really important. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. No matter what you are going through, if you are a Christian, you can know that God is working it for your good and not for your harm, for your good and not for your bad, for your good and not for your destruction. That is a wonderful promise. I mean even if God brought whatever it is into your life, you can know that he is working it for your good and then Romans 8:35 and 37 through 39, we shall what who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him. Who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what you are going through, it cannot separate you from God. And so here you want to know is it your fault? And here's my answer to you probably not. I mean, did the thing that happened in your life, was that caused by God because you were living in sin, because you weren't living for him? And the the simple answer is probably not. If you absolutely needed it, if it was the only way that God could help you live the life that that he knows you already want to live as a Christian, then maybe, but probably not. If you're like, I knew I was sinning and I I felt guilty immediately, and then this bad thing happened a month later, then probably God is not punishing you. That thing was just a coincidence, it had nothing to do with the sin in your life. If you're doing something to hurt the community of believers that we call a church, then, then maybe, but God is probably not punishing you. He treats us as a loving father. And he's not up there going, man, I hope. I mean, how many dads? There are dads, but not any good dads that are like, I really hope they mess up today so I can just spank them. I mean, yes, I caught him. You know, I mean, like, that's sick. That's disgusting, right? You're laughing. I don't know if that was your dad or what, but, but that's, a, that's, a, that's a bad dad. And this is not how our God treats us. And so if you're like, was this a th- this thing, did it come from God? I can't give you a yes or no answer. All I can offer is probably not. Maybe if you were backsliding, if you were moving away from God, if He needed to do something in your life to stop it, but probably not. And here's what I think that question ought to lead us to. If you're like, was it my fault? Is God punishing me? I think there's only two places it can lead us. The first is this. If you're not a Christian, You need to give your life to Jesus. I mean, here's the deal. Bad things happen, you already know that, right? I mean, every one of us knows that. But if you give your life to Jesus, if you become a Christian, then in the midst of those bad things, you can find comfort from God, as we talked about last week, and you can have the promise that God will work everything for your good. If you're not a Christian, you don't have that promise. And further, you don't have the promise of the weight of glory, eternity in heaven where there will be no more sorrow, no more tear, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. And so when you look at yourself and you think, wow, did, did God do this? Is this my fault? Is it something that, that I caused? Then, then you ought to say, man, I don't know. Probably not. That pastor told me. But you ought to give your life to Jesus. Jesus so that he can turn all of those bad things into good and so that he can give you comfort and he can give you the promise of an eternity in heaven where you won't have to deal with these things anymore. You see, it's really easy just to sit on that question. And and it's even easier if you haven't been a Christian, if you're not a Christian, to try to turn that question against God. To say, wow, if a loving God allows bad things to happen, then he's not really loving. And to reject God altogether. But if you flip it around, you already know you deserve a lot of bad things. I mean, you know all the stuff that you've done wrong. I know all the stuff that I've done wrong. And, and the truth is, the, the question hardly needs to be answered. Why would a good God allow bad things to happen? The real question that needs to be answered on a personal level is why doesn't a lot more bad stuff happened to me and why is it that that I can find comfort in the midst of bad things and why is it that anything good can come out of the bad things that I deal with and the only answer for me and, and going through these miscarriages and going through all the bad stuff that I've been through is that I have a savior named Jesus who loves me and turns all bad things into good and promises me a future eternity in heaven. And so if you're not a Christian and, and you, you're trying to play the game where you're like, oh, I'm going to make God bad because bad stuff happens, then really you just ought to wake up and, and kind of recognize that, that maybe we deserve a lot more bad stuff. We deserve a lot more evil to come into our lives when we look at our lives, when we kind of look inside of ourselves. And so don't reject God, but embrace God and say, God, man, I want to know that every bad thing that comes upon my life has purpose. Purpose. Because of the purpose you're giving. And not because you cause all of these things. Some a lot of things, most of the things, 90% of things you deal with, God did not cause. He allowed for them to happen because he gives humanity free will. But you can find meaning in those if you give your life to Jesus. Now here's the other thing. If you are a Christian, here's the thing. The simple cliche answer allows for us to continue to live in our sense. We go, oh man, this was horrible. I can't believe that this happened. Somebody at church told me it couldn't have been my fault. I get to keep living exactly how I want to live. But the Bible seems to say something entirely different. It seems to say when something bad happens to you, then what you ought to do is you ought to allow it to move you closer to God. You ought to allow it to fix the things in your life that need to be fixed, to change the things in your life that need to be changed. And so here's the thing, if you're a Christian, and you're going, was this my fault? Probably not. But can you identify things in your life that would have made it your fault? Can you look and point to specific sins that you're wondering if it was because of that? And if you can, then you need to change those things. And you need to allow the bad stuff that is going on in your life to move you to a place where you're fixing those things and working on becoming all that God wants you to be. You see, the cliche answer allows for us to go, not my fault. But when we look at scripture as a whole and go, could be, probably not, but could be, then it causes us to really examine the things that we are doing in the way in which we live our lives. Are there things that God wants you to do that you're not doing? Are there things that you are doing that you ought not be doing according to the word of God and according to the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you? James 1, 2 through 4 says one of the things that, I struggle with the most. I don't know how this can possibly be, and I, I won't even sugarcoat that. It just this doesn't make sense. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I want to look at James and be like, "Hey, you consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds." You know, I mean, like, like you can't tell me to consider it joy that we lost our two babies. That's not joyful. But that's what James says, and he gives a reason for it, and the reason is what I'm going to focus on today, because I think the reason is what I've actually learned to do. When I get around to verse two, then I'll come back and preach a sermon on it once I have it figured out, and none of you will like me anymore, but but this is what I, I think I'm getting to, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When you face trials, you could spend about a minute, if you're doing it properly, saying, did God do this? Is this God punishing me? Is he disciplining me? And then after you ask that question, you ponder it for a second, you go, probably not. You need to go, is there anything in my life that God might use this to fix? Is there anything I'm doing or not doing that I should be doing or shouldn't be doing that God wants to use this in order to help me with. Not that he did it even. Maybe he didn't do it. But he still wants to use it. Whatever the various trial is in your life. Whatever it is. He wants to use it. To make you all that you already want to be as Christians. He wants to use it to grow you in your joy. And in your peace. And your perseverance. He wants to use it to grow you in your goodness. And in your mutual affection for others. And your love. And your self-control. He wants to use it. And so don't just give yourselves the cliche answer, yeah, it wasn't my fault, let me just keep living. But say, hey, is there anything, is there anything in my life that God wants to use this tragedy to fix? I don't know the answer. Maybe you'll say no. Maybe you can't point to anything. Maybe you'll, and that's good. Continue to live the way you're living, but maybe you'll see something. And go about fixing whatever it is. The thing is, about tragedy, it's kind of two levels to the answers. There's the, the problem of pain, as C.S. Lewis called it, that can be just intellectually dealt with. Like, here, here is why bad things happen to you. And if you, it's a great book if you want to pick up the problem of pain. And, and that's one level. And, and C.S. Lewis wrote that book, and then his wife died. And he wrote a second book that I just finished, and it's called uh, A Grief Observed. And what you find in the midst of the two books are very different. One, you see this intellectual man offering intellectual reasons for why bad things take place in a person's life. And if you're in the midst of tragedy or grief and you read that book, you're like, you're an idiot, that's easy for you to say. I don't care about these answers. But in a grief observed, it's like this man who's, it's his diary entry, literally. And he gets to points and he's like, a right, and, and you'll be like, man, that doesn't even sound like a Christian thing to say. And then the next chapter, he'll say, I just reread what I wrote last night, and that's not even right. I wrote that in a very dark place, and, and I don't even agree with the words that I just penned. And when you face tragedy, and, and you're dealing with the question of pain, it's easy to look inside of yourself and go, Why? But really, you don't want a why I know this because you need an intellectual reason. It's the really what they call the pastoral problem of pain. You want a why like, this hurts. This hurts and I'm suffering. And I think what God wants to say to you is, hey, hey, I'm not gonna offer you a great explanation. You don't need to know if I caused this or not. What you need to know is that I love you and I care about you and I'm here for you, and no matter how terrible this is, I'm gonna use it for you, and you're good. God isn't looking down going, you just always need to figure out if it's something you did wrong. God's looking down saying, I wanna put my arms around you. I wanna take you in, and I wanna make you feel better, and I wanna help you live better. And so if you, I know, because I know it's very real to me, and it's very real to some of you, and and you're just thinking like, Was it my fault? I don't think God wants you to sit around and think about that. I think God wants you to sit around and think about him and how he wants to use this in your life and how he wants to help you through it and how he wants to give you and remind you of the promise of eternity. Will you pray with me? Lord, you know this was hard for me, God. This was, uh, I preferred the easy answer, Lord. And to be honest, God, I hate the thought of you bringing hurt into our lives. And God, you know that I've personally come to the conclusion that the miscarriages weren't my fault. I don't think you would do that to my babies because of me. Uh, but at the same time, God, whatever you do, Lord, I know enough about you to know that, that you are good that you love me and you care about me and you do nothing, nothing to ruin me, God. And so, Lord, I pray for each of us in this room that have things in our lives that are causing us to ask, is it because of me, that instead of, of pondering this question on like a logical level and, and trying to make it just about what we think, we would just feel your embrace and your comfort and your joy. And we would know, Lord, that whatever the reason for this thing called pain, this stuff that we hate, that God ultimately, the only only solution to it, we know the problem, but the only solution is you, Lord. And I pray we would run to you. For some, I pray they'd run to you for the first time. For others, Lord, I pray they'd run back to you. Removing sin, getting focused on you, getting excited about you, reading your word, whatever it is, whatever needs to happen, Lord. Lord, I love you and I know there's so many people in this room that agree with me that we love you and we will love you no matter what takes place in our lives because we know that, that ultimately, God, you came to fix our broken hearts, our broken lives. You came, God, to take away the pain and the suffering that we deal with. Pray these things in your name. Amen.